Hello, it's Nick back once again. Um, first off, I just want to say thanks to everyone who's listened to the podcast so far. I'm, I'm, I'm really chuffed about it and we might even uh, breach double figures for listeners one day soon, so that's kind of cool. Also, I finally got a message that wasn't about me mumbling, so, so that was kind of nice. It was, however, about me calling Ned Stark the King of the North when we all know he was only Warden of the North. I mean, that's obviously a deliberate mistake, isn't it? But pounced upon by Daniel, the constant gardener, it says here, whatever that means. Anyway, in my best but still kind of shit Bruce Buffer impersonation, it's time to introduce episode four of the Irreverent History of Ulster. It's called The Tale of Two James Agnew. Learn of the past, the can't be asked. It's researching such a mystery. So I'll grab this podcast and I'll learn at last of Ulster's irreverent history. Okay, so you may be going, but as I said in the last podcast, that this episode was going to be about the Battle of Langmark. And who knows, you may even have went, what, when I said that too, as it's not the most famous of battles. But I can assure you, it's more of a culmination, a climax, so to speak. And we all like climaxes, don't we? But anyway, it involves two soldiers that fight for the British Empire in World War One, both called, yeah, you guessed it, James Agnew. One is from the east of Belfast and should be known as Jamesy. E for the East, you know, pretty smart, eh? And the other is from the West of Belfast and should be referred to as Irish J. We're going to go full whack pretentious here and use them as representations of the Unionist and Nationalist communities in Ireland in the early 1900s. So, if you're ready, grab a seat, strap in, and let's get cracking. Okay, so let's put a little bit of context to this by quoting Axel Rose. I don't need your civil war, it feeds the rich. Well, it buries the poor, and I could have sworn he got war and poor to rhyme, but I can't. Anyway, Ireland was most definitely poor in 1912, and it was also on the brink of a civil war that was governed by Britain. The mostly Protestant Northern Territories, they were pretty cool with that, but the rest, not so much. They wanted home rule, jurisdiction to make their own laws out of Dublin, a first step to independence. The prods, however, under James Craig and Edward Carson, they got wind of this and reacted like any normal people would and organised a big protest party known as Ulster Day and getting 500,000 signatures on a document called the Ulster Covenant which declared their ominous intention to protect Ulster by all means at their disposal. Oh, and they also formed an armed militia known as the UVF or Ulster Volunteer Force who managed to procure guns from uh, the Germans, but more on that in a minute. There was even a catchy slogan to encapsulate the disgust of the North. No, it's not no surrender, though I'm sure that was shrieked a few times. No, it was home rule is Rome rule, which I cannot stop saying to the tune of Bodger and Badger, if you remember that from the 90s. In reaction to this, not, not Bodger and Badger, the Irish volunteers were formed. And by 1913, both sides had over 100,000 men, all willing to die, over to whom they paid their taxes. Just like in my house, if I accidentally delete an unwatched episode of X Factor, tension was a boiling point. Something had to give. Enter stage right, Britain, and its hung parliament with the Liberals under Herbert Asquith needing the Irish vote to hold on to power. This parallels the DUP recently hoodwinking the Tories into giving the Northern Irish economy a two billion quid boost, and John Redmond, leader of the Irish Paramilitary Party, Parliamentary Party, put his demands to Asquith, and much the vitriolic disgust of the North, home rule was given top billing. It had already been twice denied by the House of Lords, but it was something else, almost as sinister, that would see it fail once again. It was a young Serbian freedom fighter slash terrorist called Gavrilo Princip who replied to Franz Ferdinand's cry to take me out, shooting him in the face and prompting the outbreak of World War I. So that was that. War was declared. 
was Kaiser Bill and his Germany with Austria-Hungary, Turkey pretty much against the rest, including Britain, France, Russia, and latterly the Yanks when they sniffed that some dollar bills could be made. But where does this leave poor old Ireland? I mean, the Germans had craftily armed the volunteers on both sides of the divide, hoping internal hostilities would distract Britain. Armed to the teeth, the volunteers looked like fighting forces. They felt like fighting forces, and they were ready to kick off. But their leader said no. Edward Carson, a Dublin-born Unionist, beseeched his men to join the fight in Europe and reinforce the bonds of the Union. John Redmond, he too implored his men to sign up, but for him, it was a way of showing that Ireland deserved their much-sought-after home rule. So what are the Jameses here, you ask? Well, Jamesy, from the East, remember, joined up in 1914 at Ballymacarrett, just around the corner from his parents' house in Mersey Street. He was a 16-year-old kid and signed up alongside his 30-year-old uncle, also called James. As a member of the YCV, he joined with the 14th Royal Irish Rifles, part of the Ulster 36th Division, and trained at homeland camps like that at Clanleyboy State in Bangor and Finner Park in Donegal. Before moving on to Aldershot in England, it was there that Lord Kitchener, head of the British Army, inspected them, saying they were the finest he'd ever seen. Like a consummate creep, he may just have said that to all the girls, but with that endorsement ringing in their ears, Jamesy and his troop headed to France in 1915. Now for Irish Jay, he signed up in Lisburn in the same year. He was slightly older at 19 and joined the 7th Royal Irish Rifles, part of the Irish 16th Division. They were sent to County Kerry for training before moving to France also late in 1915, and I can neither confirm nor deny if they too received creepy compliments from Kitchener. But these two guys were both from Belfast and both signed up for different divisions. What motivated them to do so? Is that the question? Well, I'll answer it here, okay? Some people are going to say religion and political alignment. I mean, that's the most obvious answer. The 36th were Unionist, the 16th Nationalist, but is it that simple? No, I don't think so. Many signed up just seeking adventure. Life in Ireland was probably a little tough at the turn of the century. You know, poverty was commonplace, jobs were scarce, and I mean, there's no tenders. You pretty much had to marry a bird from your village who may or may not be closely related to you. Therefore, thought of an escapade through Europe was tantalising. It had to be. I mean, earn some money, kill some jerrys, and meet a few chicks that don't share your bloodline. I mean, that sounds better to me. But by the first year of the war, over 40,000 men from Ulster agreed and had signed up, and the same again from the other three provinces combined. France and a summer at the Somme awaited. Now, despite the uptake in the war of volunteers, the tensions in Ireland hadn't dissipated. In April 1916, the Easter Rising took place in Dublin. It was a slightly scorned rebellion at the time, but once quelled, it was the manner of the execution of the leaders that caused huge anti-British sentiment on the island of Ireland. In a move straight out of the Anil playbook, the Germans were all over it, targeting the Irish divisions in France with constant propaganda, banging on about how their countrymen back home are rebelling and how their wives and kids are being shelled by the Brits day in, day out, that sort of thing did not have the effect that the Germans expected, as the 16th showed their true colours at Gilmore and Ginsey a few months later. Ernst Junger, a highly decorated German soldier and author, wrote about his time in a trench at Gilmore. He said, As the storm raged around us, I walked up and down my sector. The men had fixed bayonets. They stood stony and motionless, rifle in hand, on the front edge of the dip, gazing into the field. Now and then, by the light of a flare, I saw a steel helmet by steel helmet, blade by glinting blade, and I was overcome by a feeling of invulnerability. Well, unfortunately for Younger, the 16th decimated his sector before moving on and taking Ginchy. They lost over 1,200 men in the two battles, but they had more than proved their loyalty to the Allied cause. Equally, the Ulster 36th were also heavily involved in the fight just a few weeks previous. On the 1st of July, at the infamous opening day of the Battle of the Somme, suffering around 5,500 casualties with over 2,000 dead. 
despite being one of the few units to actually reach their objective that day, that of the impregnable Schwaben Redoubt, they suffered most of the casualties during the retreat as the planned support just did not materialise. However, they fought like champions that day, impressing General Staff Officer Wilfred Spender so much that he said after the battle that I am not an Ulsterman. But yesterday, the 1st of July, as I followed their amazing attack, I felt that I would rather be an Ulsterman than anything else in the world. Like both both the Jameses fought in these battles. RSJ was one of the casualty statistics, but fear not, he would be back on his feet in no time, as after the horrors of the Somme, the sixteenth thirty six, which is how I will collectively refer to the sixteenth and thirty six divisions whenever a bloody well feel like it, alright, were rotated out to camps around St. Omer in France. It was like a holiday for the guys, you know, sun, sangria, that kind of thing. And they soon made themselves at home, naming their camps. One was called the Shankle Camp and another Celtic Park. I'm sure you get hazard guess as to who stayed where. But the burning question is, did they mingle? Did the two camps ever get together? Well, yeah, they did, and there were not as many issues as you would expect, especially in the light of the Easter Rise and the whole Civil War jive only a few years previous. Now, I'm sure there was a few religious slurs bandied about, Fenian shouted here, orange bastard screeched there, but nothing en masse. You know, as an aside here, I'll just explain that, as I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I like to refer to Urban Dictionary. I mean, it's a pretty good reference, but it's, it's where many of the world's wildlings hang out and express their inane madness, you know. So, for those that don't know what a Fenian or an orange bastard is, let's head to the herb and see what the loons say. Well, one contributor says a Fenian is a person who wears a Glasgow Celtic top, has a bum fluff moustache, and smells quite badly. Whereas another post claims that an orange bastard is a dirty, smelly scumbag who still celebrates a Catholic killing horse shagging poof King Billy after all them years. Top definitions right there, and I hope that helped clear a few things up. I also have an aside number two, just on the cuff here. I was once in a training course and uh, a scouser uh, sidled up to me and, and asked uh, an absolute whopper of a question. He goes to me, what's the deal with calling people Athenians? I mean, what the fuck did the Greeks do to cause so much shit in Ulster? I mean, how do you respond to that? I don't know. Anyway, despite the assumptions of many, there was good chat between the two divides with the Germans, I mean, a common enemy as they were, soaking up most of the bile and hatred that was swilling about, allowing everyone else to just kind of get along. Sport, when men are together, played a pivotal role, like boxing and football pretty much taking centre stage. One such football match attracted around 3,000 spectators. The top brass almost called it off for fear of, like, a Germans hearing about it and uh, launching an artillery strike to wipe out the gathered crowd, but it was good for morale, so the game was allowed to go ahead, and the Falls beat the Rangers 2-0. Now, before the Hoops fans start celebrating, you know, it's not the men from Ibrox, but it's actually the nationalist Connacht Rangers. Those are the long way to Tipperary fame, losing to the Unionist Falls, whose nickname comes from its Irish war cry. And here I'm going to turn to my Irish language consultant and her cantankerous assistant for a pronunciation lesson. Boabala. Boabala. No, Boabala. Thanks for that, El. It means clear the way. Is there an irony in a Protestant regiment using an Irish term as their motto? I mean, if there is, then there has to be some in the aforementioned Connacht Rangers using the Latin term quis separabit, which means who will separate us, which is also utilised now by the Protestant paramilitary group known as the UDA. But back to the 1636 bonding chat, right? The 16th had a band and they were playing pretty much every night in a, in a village called Loger. On Saturday the 26th of May 1917, many of the 14th Royal Irish Rifles attended the show and had a, you know, jolly old knees up, so to speak. It kind of makes you wonder if Jamesy and RSJ attended, doesn't it? You know, it's certainly what I was thinking about. If so, were they just two faces in the crowd? You know, Belfast boys, unknown to each other, just hanging out with their mates? Possibly. But 
I like to imagine that the two James like knew they met there, laughing at the coincidence of their mutual handle, you know, maybe even sharing a sing-song, a smoke, a handshake, you know, a joke, you know, wouldn't it be just so poetic if they did? I mean, maybe they even shared a drink, a toast perhaps, you know, to a free Ireland or to a prolonged British rule or probably to the ill health of the complete ball bag Kaiser Bill. Just pontificating this point a little further, there was a, a soldier called Walter Collins, who was a Londoner, and he served in the 9th Royal Irish Rifles. And he said the following, The 16th and the 36th Divisions lived and fought side by side, got on with each other splendidly, and at times even pulled each other's chestnuts out of the fire. I said, what? I mean, at first I was laughing, thinking, how shit, chestnuts are so lame. I mean, really? But then it twigged with me. It twigged that it's a gentle euphemism for saving each other's ass in combat. And that made me smile. That's camaraderie right there, you know. In a nutshell, sorry, uh, but that's what it's all about. Even though it's all kicking off at home on the continent, they were just men getting along, drinking, banter, sport, throwing a few French maids, and their life would actually sound pretty sweet. Well, until that is, you remember that they are smack bang in the middle of arguably the biggest war ever fought in human history. But there you go. as is the one downside, the good things is they always have to end. So when the R&R finished, both divisions were rotated into Messines in Belgium in early June 1917 with the aim of seizing the high ground south of Ypres. The army there was controlled by General Plumer. He was a man who many respected, not just for his military diligence and his tactical know-how, but for his appreciation of human life. I mean, the men believed strongly that he would not sacrifice them willingly, and that is quite the comforter, you know, all things considered. The plan was to launch a number of infantry assaults supported by, uh, supported and covered by a creeping barrage of artillery. The kicker though was the planting of huge mines and tunnels that had been dug deep beneath the enemy lines by Irish miners nonetheless who were fresh from doing the London Underground. It was here that the 1636 fought side by side, literally side by side. The 36 took position southwest of the heavily fortified village of Weshart, with the 16 taking position directly on its left. Again, this is a sign that the 1636 had built up a friendly rapport as they would not be placed beside each other in the middle of a war zone if they were even remotely antagonistic. Together, they attacked on the 7th of June, zero hour being about ten past three, with Birdsong painting this serene picture of calm, 19 mines were detonated. Many of the craters that resulted from the tremendous blast are still visible today, and in them are maybe the particles of the estimated 10,000 Germans that were absolutely vaporised. Yeah, that's 10,000 in a second. Holy shit balls! Like it's like most of the cop end at Liverpool just disappearing in one second. In the midst of all the dust and debris falling from the sky, the 1636 advanced hard, some actually getting caught in the mine that was detonated late. But not Jamesy or RSJ. They both fought bitterly and bastardly, battling their way to the village of Weishart. There, sweaty and exhausted, the 1636 met right in the middle, choosing high fives and backslaps over cuss words and shooting kneecaps. In only a few hours of outright battle, they had removed the German forces that had held the ridge for almost three years. Messines was the first true salvo shared by the 1636. It was a massive victory for the Allies and a prelude to the Third Battle of Ypres. The first act had gone better than imagined. The second would burn the bloody house down. Ypres was a beautiful city, demolished by war and the name given to three highly significant battles, not significant due to military breakthroughs but more due to human cost. 
it was pretty much deep in conflict for the full extent of the war, with 230,000 dead from the first battle in late 1914, a further 100,000 died in mid-1915 in the second battle, and around half a million died late in 1917 from the third. That's almost a million men who died in Ypres, not counting the injured who died later from wounds suffered both physically and mentally. But do you know what? See of those one million, do you know who didn't die? No, I'm not talking about the Jameses. I'm talking about a certain Austrian-born Lance Corporal named Adolf Bloody Hitler. He was wounded at the Somme, survived the fighting of both the First and Third Battles of Ypres, earning the Iron Cross First Class for gallantry. Now, I mean, he's obviously still a dick. A brave, lucky dick, yes, but still a total dick. But it makes you wonder how different Europe might be if his injuries had been super fatal rather than superficial. Anyway, the third battle you praise better known as Passchendaele, which sounds like a blue movie set in the farmlands of Norfolk, doesn't it? But it's eminently more like a snuff movie set in the darkest recesses of the underworld. Siegfried Sassoon described it with one word. Hell. It's also spoke of as Flanders Fields, which may be more familiar to you, but Flanders, or... Anyway, artillery badges would be 24-7, preventing even the slightest slumber. Death, in those instances, maybe was seen as a sweet relief, as many slipped into shell shock, or PTSD as it's now known. I'm sure we've all had a neighbour who thinks they're David Guetta playing to the masses, turning up the base to where your browser's DVD collection starts teetering on the edge of the shelf. I mean, can you remember how irritated you were? How angry? Especially if you were trying to sleep and it was three in the morning. Well, that anger, that rage, that feeling of sheer hatred and despair, multiply it by a thousand and that feeling is nowhere fucking near what those guys were feeling. Exacerbating it is the fact that they... They had to sleep in shallow trenches and they weren't the only ones to bed down there in the mud. Many a man woke up after a few glorious minutes kept to find a rat burrowing into their boot. You know, I'll admit, yeah, okay, I've woken up beside a few rats before in my time, mostly at uni now, but that was all self-inflicted and I certainly never found any trying to chew my toes. Well, there was one, but, you know, let's move on. The men in the front lines, they not only had to contend with snipers, sleep deprivation and constant booming artillery, but it was also the first real introduction of aeroplanes and the crazy pilots that buzzed along the trenches, learning to wreak death and destruction in both men and supplies. The worst of all, however, was maybe the mud. Not like the quintessentially British sliding about a glass and isn't this all such a laugh mud, but a substance that more had more in common with clay, like an adhesive that gummed like a glue around boots and rifle butts. You mean it sucked at you, fighting you every inch of your accursed journey? It was partly as a result of the monsoon-type rainfall and the demolition of the battlefield's irrigation systems, and it created a total bastard of a morass, with men sliding into craters and never returning, the weight of their packs sealing their fate as they slid into the dank abyss. But, I mean, life wasn't exactly cushy for those further back either. The reserves were not spared these horrors. I mean, they were pressed into the battlefield to evacuate the injured, construct new trenches, delay and repair phone cables. The latter was like a Sisyphean task, with the barrages destroying lines as rapidly as they could be restored. This is not a war, Sebastian Fox states in Birdsong. This is an exploration of how far men can be degraded. But despite these conditions, the British pushed on. The idea was to break through to the German submarine bases in northern Belgium. The Admiralty put in General Haig, the supreme British commander, under immense pressure to stop the U-boats from plundering the high seas. The French were also close to mutiny after the epic failure of the Nivelle offensive, but none of this really mattered to Haig, as for some reason he had a raging hard-on for attacking through Belgium. It really just boiled down to his choice of general for him. Go with a vigorous golf who was younger and more gung-ho, or pick the meticulous plumber, the planner, the one who placed value in the life of his men. He chose golf, and for many it would mean paying the ultimate price. 
Passchendaele took place along the Ypres salient, which is a bulge in the line, but the British held the town of Ypres, but the Germans held a higher ground, and they utilised that to full effect. After Messine, Haig had chosen not to strike straight away, delaying and ruining his decision as the rains came. It was during this time that the Germans recovered, building huge bunkers and pillboxes across the entire ridge, including areas such as Zonapik, Polygon Wood and Hooge. These three areas were all the feature in the British attack, but we will focus on the village of Langmark. In April 1915, around the start of the Second Battle of Ypres, it was at Langmark that the Germans launched their first chemical attack. With high command shitting themselves over this breach of war convention, the only advice they had for their soldiers was to urinate in their socks and use them to cover their face and mouths. I mean, piss socks, like, wise up. I know guys that can't even go if there's someone three urinals down from them in a bar, let alone in the middle of a battlefield with bullets and barrages and gas and all in the mix. They'd have to get someone else to piss in their socks. Well, I mean, I think I'd rather take my chances with the gas there. But let's turn our attention once more to the Jameses. The 1636 were brought to the front line 16 days before the battle began. They were shelled and gassed incessantly, seeing colleagues blown to bits or drowning in crater holes, and they were pissed on every day, not by the sock guys, but by the unrelenting dark clouds above. Both divisions lost around 2,000 men each in just over two weeks before the attack. On the morning of the 16th of August, at 4.45, the badly broken and battered 1636 commenced their assault. You have to wonder here what Jamesy and RSJ would have been thinking. Both had survived the horrors of the Somme, proved themselves worthy of missing, and now they were going over the top again. Jamesy was a veteran at 19, East Belfast born and bred, RSJ a little older at 23 from West Belfast. Neither were married, no children, only their comrades at that moment knowing what they had been through and what was lying in front of them. They both picked themselves up and made for the enemy lines, probably supplemented by rum in their bellies as a way of countering not just weeks without sleep but also the fear of imminent death. Once again, the 1636 fought side by side, with the two James Agnew both in the mile and a half long front. The two boys from Belfast that may or may not have known each other, fighting for their future. It was no longer about king and country or home rule or any of that, it was all about survival. 36 managed to get halfway to their objective before having to dig in. A pillbox and palm farm wreaking havoc on their lines with machine gun fire when they were eventually forced to retreat, reminiscent of the actions of the Somme. On the other hand, many of the 16th were hit before they had even left the trench, yet still advanced a similar distance as the 36th, but by nightfall they had despairingly found themselves pressed back to where they had started due to a ferocious German counterattack. Wave upon wave of the Kaiser's spiky-helmeted infantryman coming over the crest of the Zonabig St. Julian Ridge and driving them right back to where they started. The battle was over. The 1636 were broken to bits and their brigadiers called it murder, sending men over the top in such horrific conditions should never have even been considered. 1,198 men from the two Irish divisions died, 595 from the 16th and 603 from the 36th making it the second worst day for the Irish in the war, with the opening day of the Somme taking that dark mantle. Many chestnuts were left in the fire that day. The two, James Agnew, were among that number. So that's it then. Both dead, or titty bread as we say in Ulster. But what did they die for? In hindsight it's easy to say it was a waste, a travesty, but it was a century ago. It's hard to imagine what life was like back then, the pressures they faced, the world they lived in. What we do know is that Irish Jane wanted home rule, and ultimately Irish independence. What he got was a 26-state republic and an occupied six out of the equation, with internal violence soaring in the early 1920s. 
His fellow soldiers would be shunned when they returned home to their post-independent Ireland, not deemed to be fitting the Republican narrative. The country suffered a collective amnesia, with many soldiers who had joined due to Redmond's plea left bereft and penniless, having to leave their beloved island to seek pastures anew. Is that a fitting way to treat such heroes? For many, it was only the Queen's 2011 visit to the Island Bridge Memorial, the first to be erected almost 70 years after the war, that publicised the fact that one even existed in Ireland at all. And also the homecoming was vastly different, for the Unionists at least. They were seen as conquerors, champions, many had paid a blood sacrifice to Britain, and to many this fully justified the separation from the nationalist South that was created by the Government of Ireland Act 1920. That act allowed six counties of Ulster to form Northern Ireland. To many Unionists it was a victory, something to cherish, but the others it was a disgrace. They had given away the three counties that had most nationalist sentiment, splitting the province and making a slight mockery of the song Ulster Till I Die, unless you add the fraction of two-thirds of the front, that is. It was a tactical manoeuvre so the Unionists would have a majority, but it left many other Unionists in the three jettisoned counties appalled and despairing for their future. James E. fought for a British Ireland, not just for Ulster. The Nationalists too, those from Ulster, from Belfast, those like RSJ were also shunned up north as they didn't fit the Protestant narrative either. So again, they were written out of history and largely ignored, despite all what they had done. To conclude the story and answer the initial question, no, neither got what they wanted, not really, but in morbid fashion it brings us onto their deaths. I want to hope they die like heroes, saving other men, putting them before themselves, but to be truthful we just don't know, we will never know. We can just hope that they died quickly and didn't have to face pain didn't have to see the horrors right before they died, as I'm sure they'd seen enough. Jamesy was 19, RSJ 23, I was still at uni by age 24, skipping class to watch double episodes of ER and Diagnosis Murder, or heading to the Union for cheap Stella, or trying to sneak out of the rats' houses without waking them up. I didn't know what I wanted to do in my life then, in many ways I still don't, but in a few months I'll be twice Jamesy's age, in a few years I'll be twice RSJ's, and I still feel like I've got a hell of a lot of living to do. I mean, I'm getting slightly morose here, a little bit sentimental, I suppose, but you look at it, these two men, born just miles apart, fighting just miles apart, and dying just miles apart, all in a foreign land. Now, they are now commemorated on the Tynecott Memorial, their names separated by mere millimetres on a plaque. They have no grave, save for the ground upon where they died, and the sheer fact that both their names are on the memorial shows that their bodies were never recovered, well, not in any recognisable form anyway, so... Somewhere out there in Passchendaele, out there in Belgium, are the final resting places of two James Agnew. Okay, so every story should have a start, a middle, and a twist. And here's the twist. Now, Stephen King's not going to be shitting himself here, but I'm not sure if you've twigged on or not, but Jamesy was my great uncle. His sister, Sadie Agnew, was my granny. That was her name from, she called him Jamesy, you know. Unfortunately, she passed away well before I developed my love of history or I would have been grilling her constantly. Now, the other James I knew, I just found by coincidence. I mean, the fact that he had the same name piqued my interest. And also when he was from Belfast, then I started investigating. Both the contrast and the similarities of the two men were staggering. So much so that I had to include him in the story. I just, just had to. In light of this, like, me and my dad are heading to Passchendaele on the 15th of August and are going to visit the final resting place of both men on the 100th anniversary of their death. I'll be posting photos and videos on my Instagram, DaveTree69, but also on Facebook and Twitter uh, of Reverend History if I can ever get my arse in the gear and get them sorted. 
all the details of the social media, though, it's it's on the website, irreverenthistory.com, or you can email me at irreverenthistory at gmail.com. And please do, especially if you have any further info about the two James like you. I mean, it really has been consuming me over the last couple of weeks. It's just, it's crazy. Before I finish here, though, I just want to tell you one more story. When I was starting off my drinking career in my hometown of Bangor, we would, we would always go to a bar called the Jamaica Inn on a Saturday night, where the owner would, he would always play his acoustic guitar. People were always requesting Oasis or Blur or whatever, but every week I asked for the same song. Without fail, he would play it for me. It was a song that my dad had introduced me to when I was a kid, and I could have sworn it was called Young Willie McBride, but it's by a, a Scottish guy called Eric Bogle, um, but I like the, the Furies version. And it was, only, it was only when I was researching this that I realised it was actually called the Green Fields of France. I've always felt a, a weird connection to it, but after all the investigations into the, the two James I knew, the, the lyrics have extra poignancy, like extra potency. It's a, it's a pretty young Ulsterman from County Armagh called Bully McBride, age 19. Uh, the same age as Jamesy, and he dies fighting in France. The lyrics of the chorus are as follows. Did they beat the drum slowly? Did he play the fight slowly? Did they sound the dead march as they lowered you down? And did the band play the last post and chorus? And did the pipes play the flowers of the forest? It resonates with me now, knowing that so many died without a grave, without a ceremony. The only, the only drum beat was that of the constant artillery barrage or, or gunfire. The death march to the last post and the flowers of the forest are all tunes lamenting the dead and the fallen from military struggle. I mean, honestly, check it out. Like, I, I beseech you to check it out, just to go all highbrow there, but it's just, it's just an epic tune. Or, or you can go to YouTube and search for the, the version of the Late Late Show. And I'll, I'll link that version on the show notes for the episode, which is irreverenthistory.com slash 004, if you want to go there instead. I mean, no pressure. But anyway, before I start to weep here, we're going to play one final tune. And just in case he didn't get it, it's the last post for Willie, and for Great Uncle Jamesy, and for Irish Jay. For, for all the guys, for everyone who fell in conflict, whether you choose to believe they fell as heroes, or victims, for glory, or failure, or... Just teenagers lured to their deaths, whatever you think. It's the last post. Laters. <laughs>